You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. If you listen to several podcasts, I bet you've heard about surveys, and you're about to hear about another one. It would be a huge benefit to the podcast if you could head over to surveymonkey.com slash r slash airwave, or just click the link in the episode show notes. There will be a set of questions about who you are, how you listen, and what you like about the podcast, which is hopefully almost everything. It should not take you longer than 10 minutes. This is important for the show as a way to attract advertisers. It might also help me make choices about podcast structure and content in the future. If you take your time to fill out the survey, just know that, you know, I personally say thank you. Hello, everyone, and welcome to History of the Second World War member episode preview, The British Blue Book. This is the second of what will be seven member episodes that will be released here on the main podcast feed for your listening pleasure. It is also the second in a series of episodes that focus on the diplomatic communications between the various governments of Europe before the start of the Second World War. This episode is brought to you by all of the amazing people who have supported the podcast by becoming members. Their support over the previous years is, and I'm not even joking here, why this episode exists. As a reminder, this is part of a seven-week break of new mainline podcast episodes as I take a bit of a break and prepare for season three, which will begin hopefully in mid-April 2023. For more information about all the podcast sort of happenings this year and the schedule for the rest of 2023, you can check out another link in the show notes that discusses those topics. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoy. Hello, everyone, and welcome to History of the Second World War, Members Episode 24, The British Blue Book. This will be the second in our series of episodes looking at some of the primary source documents from 1939. This time, we're going to focus on the British Blue Book, which is basically the British version of the French Yellow Book, which we discussed in our last episode. Both of these books are full of diplomatic correspondence and other documents that detail the events in the years before the war with the Blue Book focusing heavily on just the six months before the start of the war in September 1939. I will start by pulling a few quotes from a speech by Prime Minister Chamberlain that was delivered on March 17, 1939, in the aftermath of the German invasion of Czechoslovakia. This would begin a lengthy period where it feels to me like the Prime Minister was generally on the defensive and trying to justify all of the talk of peace and all of the diplomatic agreements that had been made over the previous year. 
leading up to and culminating in the agreements at Munich that Hitler had basically just torn up and threw on the ground when he invaded the rest of Czechoslovakia on March 17th. Quote, When I decided to go to Germany, I never expected that I was going to escape criticism. Indeed, I did not go there to get popularity. I went there first and foremost because, in what appeared to be an almost desperate situation, that seemed to me to offer the only chance of averting a European war. And I might remind you that when it was first announced that I was going, not a voice was raised in criticism. Everyone applauded that effort. It was only later, when it appeared that the results of the final settlement fell short of the expectations of some who did not fully appreciate the facts. It was only then that the attack began. And even then, it was not the visit, it was the terms of settlement that were disapproved. End quote. I quite like this quote from Chamberlain because it touches on something I've discussed what feels like so many times on the podcast. The idea of retroactively criticizing a decision based on its outcomes, even if it was generally seen as the correct move at the time, which basically describes the entirety of the appeasement initiative. Chamberlain would continue, quote, And indeed, with the lessons of history for all to read, it seems incredible that we should see such a challenge. I feel bound to repeat that while I am not prepared to engage this country by new unspecified commitments operating under conditions which cannot now be foreseen, yet no greater mistake could be made than to suppose that, because it believes war to be a senseless and cruel thing, this nation has so lost its fiber that it will not take part to the utmost of its power in resisting such a challenge if it was ever made. End quote. He would never really waver from the idea that Britain was always ready and willing to discuss the possibilities of peace, but with the growing concern of future war, he would also constantly reiterate that while the British government would do everything it could to prevent a war, if a war happened, it was ready to play its part. Here's a quote from a speech that he gave in front of the House of Commons on March 23rd. Quote, Nor is this government anxious to set up in Europe opposing blocks of countries with different ideas about the forms of their internal administration. We are solely concerned here with the proposition that we cannot submit to a procedure under which independent states are subjected to such pressure under threat of force as to be obliged to yield up their independence. And we are resolved by all means in our power to oppose attempts, if they should be made, to put such a procedure into operation. End quote. This message was also frequently given to the German government and its representatives. For example, here is a message from British Ambassador Henderson on May 28th, after he had a meeting with Goering. After discussing the situation, Goering went on a bit of a tirade about British actions in regard to Poland. And then Henderson would say, quote, At the end of this tirade, moreover, he asked me whether England, out of envy of a strong Germany, was really bent on war with her, and if not, what was to be done to prevent it? I said that nobody in their senses could contemplate modern war without horror, but that we should not shrink from it if Germany resorted to another act of aggression. If therefore war was to be avoided, patience was necessary, and the wild men in Germany must be restrained. End quote. The key part of Goering's frustration was the announcement of the agreements made between the government in Warsaw and the French and British governments around a treaty of mutual assurance. When this agreement was first being discussed, even as it was going to commit Britain to the continent in a way that it had not even in the years before the First World War, Chamberlain would always reiterate his desire overall for peace. Here's a quote from a speech to the Commons on March 31st. Quote, I'm glad to take this opportunity of stating again the general policy of His Majesty's government. They have constantly advocated the adjustment by way of free negotiation between the parties concerned of any differences that may arise between them. 
They consider that this is the natural and proper course where differences exist. In their opinion, there should be no question incapable of solution by peaceful means, and they would see no justification for the substitution of force or threats of force for the method of negotiation. End quote. But he would then go on to, for what I think is the first time, acknowledge the fact that Britain would be committing itself to the defense of Polish borders. Quote, in order to make perfectly clear the position of His Majesty's government in the meantime, before these consultations are concluded, I now have to inform the House that during that period, in the event of any action which clearly threatened Polish independence, and which the Polish government accordingly considered it vital to resist with their national forces, His Majesty's government would feel themselves bound at once to lend the Polish government all support and their power. They have given the Polish government an assurance to this effect. End quote. This was the precise step that Chamberlain and the British cabinet had refused to take in regards to Czechoslovakia, firmly stating their intention to enter a war if necessary if borders were violated. The details of the agreement would begin to be sorted out in early April with communications between the two governments. Here is one such instance from April 6, 1939. It is agreed that the two countries were prepared to enter into an agreement of a permanent and reciprocal character to replace the present temporary and unilateral assurance given by His Majesty's government to the Polish government. Like the temporary assurance, the permanent agreement would not be directed against any other country, but would be designed to assure Great Britain and Poland of mutual assistance in the event of any threat, direct or indirect, to the independence of either. It was recognized that certain matters, including a more precise definition of the various ways in which the necessity for such assistance might arise, would require further examination before the permanent agreement could be completed. While the temporary agreement was issued quickly, there was the goal of writing up something, as was just discussed, that was more official. And as with all diplomatic agreements, this took time. It would eventually result in the agreement of mutual assistance between the United Kingdom and Poland, which would be signed in London on August 25th. You can find the text of this agreement out there online, but I will warn you that it contains no small amount of very diplomatic language, exactly the kind of things you might be expecting, a lot of talk of contracting parties and similar such language. Here are three of the eight articles which generally contain the most important bits of the agreement, at least when it comes to, to our story. For Article 1, should one of the contracting parties become engaged in hostilities with the European power in consequence of aggression by the latter against the contracting party, the other contracting party will at once give the contracting party <laughs> engaged in hostilities all of the support and assistance in its power. Article 4. The methods of applying the undertakings of mutual assistance provided by the present agreement are established between the component naval, military, and air authorities of the contracting parties. Article 7. Should the contracting parties be engaged in hostilities in consequence of the application of the present agreement, they will not conclude an armistice or treaty of peace except by mutual agreement. End quote. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential, and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own? With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. 
Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. The agreements made with Poland would spiral out into a number of different agreements with nations around Europe that all contained essentially the same types of clauses. It was truly a monumental shift in how the British government approached foreign relations with smaller nations in Europe. Here's a speech from the Secretary of State for Foreign Affairs, Halifax, on June 29, 1939, outlining some of these agreements and the reasons that they had been given. Quote, When I look back at the speech which I delivered to the Chatham House dinner in June a year ago, I am conscious, as we all are, of the great changes that have taken place. A year ago, we had undertaken no specific commitments on the continent of Europe beyond those which had then existed for some considerable time and are familiar to you all. Today we are bound by new agreements for mutual defense with Poland and Turkey. We have guaranteed assistance to Greece and Romania against aggression, and we are now engaged with the Soviet government in a negotiation to which I hope there may very shortly be a successful issue with the view of associating them with us for the defense of the states of Europe whose independence and neutrality may be threatened. We have assumed obligations and are preparing to assume more with full understanding of their causes and with full understanding of their consequences. We know that if the security and independence of other countries are to disappear, our own security and our own independence will be gravely threatened. We know that if international law and order are to be, are, is to persevere, we must be prepared to fight in its defense. But that is not the position which we face today. The threat of military force is holding the world to ransom, and our immediate task is, and here I will end as I began, to resist aggression. I would emphasize that tonight, with all of the strength at my command, so that nobody may misunderstand it. And if we are ever to succeed in removing misunderstanding and reaching a settlement which the world can trust, it must be upon some basis more substantial than verbal undertakings. It has been said that deeds, not words, are necessary. That also is our view. When thinking about Poland and making agreements with Poland, Everybody knew exactly what the primary point of contention would be between Germany and Poland. It would be the Danzig Corridor. The corridor had been created after the First World War to give Poland access to the Baltic Sea, but that meant that to do so, Poland had to be given a swath of what had previously been German-controlled Prussia. Much like in other places in Eastern Europe, there was at least some justification for this region being given to Poland. The, The area was heavily populated by individuals of Polish descent. But taking a piece of Prussia from Germany and giving it to Poland was always going to cause some animosity. As nicely summarized by Adolf Hitler himself on April 28, 1939, when giving a speech to the Reichstag. Quote, there is little to be said as regards to German-Polish relations. Here too, the Treaty of Versailles, of course intentionally, inflicted a most serious wound on Germany. The strange way in which the corridor giving Poland access to the sea was marked out was meant, above all, to prevent for all time the establishment of an understanding between Poland and Germany. This problem is, as I have already stressed, perhaps the most painful of all problems for Germany. End quote. 
Much of the plans that Germany made for dealing with the problem of the corridor would revolve around the free city of Danzig. Danzig was not officially controlled by either nation, but it was at the epicenter of the disagreements between Poland and Warsaw, with German efforts mounting over the course of the summer to prepare to turn the free city of Danzig into the German city of Danzig. Here is Halifax in a letter to the British government in Warsaw on June 30th. It would seem that Hitler is laying his plans very astutely as to present the Polish government with a feint accompli in Danzig, to which it would be difficult for them to react without appearing in the role of the aggressors. I feel that the moment has come where consultations between the Polish, British, and French governments is necessary in order that the plans of the three governments may be coordinated in time. End quote. These concerns and that letter I just read would be based on and, and driven by reports like this one that would be received from the British representative in Danzig, which was addressed to Halifax on June 30th. Quote, Yesterday morning, four German army officers in Mufti arrived here by night express from Berlin to organize Danzig Heimwehr. The Heimwehr were the German militia, similar to the German Free Corps of the 1920s or the Nazi stormtroopers of the early 1930s. Concerns about Danzig and the developments of the city would bubble all the way up to the House of Commons at various points throughout the summer. Here is one such instance when Chamberlain would address ongoing developments on July 10th. Recent occurrences in Danzig have inevitably given rise to fears that it is intended to settle her future status by unilateral action, organized by surreptitious methods, thus presenting Poland and other powers with a fate to complete. In such circumstances, any action taken by Poland to restore the situation would, it is suggested, be represented as an act of aggression on her part, and if her action were supported by other powers, they would be accused of aiding and abetting her in the use of force. His Majesty's government realized that recent developments in the free city have disturbed confidence and rendered it difficult at present to find an atmosphere in which reasonable counsels may prevail. Quote. While tracking events in the city and planning the proper responses and reactions, there was also frequently some uncertainty of exactly what German intentions were. While there were at times points of increasing stress and the threat of action, there were also periods where it appeared that the German government had decided to pursue a more conciliatory approach on the Danzig question, which would be the feeling in the third week of July, as shown by this message from Halifax to Ambassador Norton in Warsaw on July 21st. There is some reason to think that German policy is now to work with Poland on the Danzig question. It is nevertheless essential not to destroy possibility of better atmosphere at outset, and I trust that more care than ever will be taken on Polish side to avoid provocation in any sphere and to restrain press. End quote. In the Norton's response on July 25th, Mr. Beck asked me to assure you that Polish government were always on the lookout for signs of a German wish for a detente. They are inspired by the same principles as your lordship, since it was in everyone's interest that temperature should be allowed to fall. Polish commissioner in Danzig has received formal instructions to deal with each question in a purely practical and objective manner, even shooting of Polish customs guards, which Polish government now considered to have been deliberate, was being treated as a local incident. End quote. I like these two small pieces of correspondence because it's easy when summarizing the events in Europe in the summer of 1939 to view them as a straight line of increasing uh, tensions, which then led to the war. But for the people living at the same time and, and trying to make policy decisions, the path was often less certain and less linear. Small things could change the outlook on the future, with those two messages I just quoted being prompted by a report from a British ambassador in Berlin that things that he was hearing from sources within the German government pointed them towards sort of believing that the Germans were seeking peace or didn't want to escalate tensions any further. However, 
if there were periods of uncertainty, August 1939 was, was really not one of them. It was kind of over by then. And throughout the month, it became more and more clear that tensions were rising and the threat of war was increasing seemingly by the day. During early August, further German actions would inflame tensions in the city, but there would still be some lingering optimism in London, as shown by this message from Halifax to Warsaw on August 15th. Quote, I have the impression that Herr Hitler is still undecided and anxious to avoid war and to hold his hand, if he can do so, without losing face. As there is a possibility of him not forcing the issue, it is evidently essential to give him no excuse for acting, whether or not conversations about Danzig at some future time may be possible. End quote. Another key part of communications at this time, which we discussed last episode because of the same conversations that were happening in French diplomatic circles, would be the German accusations of Polish actions and Polish denial of any wrongdoings. Here is Sir Kennard from Danzig to discuss these allegations when writing to Halifax on August 24th. Quote, While I am of course not in a position to check all the allegations made by the German press of minority persecutions here, I am satisfied from inquiries I have made that the campaign is a gross distortion of the and exaggeration of the facts. Accusations of beating with chains, throwing on barbed wire, being forced to shout insults against Herr Hitler in chorus are merely silly, but many individual cases specified have been disproved. End quote. It almost reminds me of the disinformation tactic of simply overloading the other side with misinformation, making it almost impossible to disprove everything. Because who has the time to line by line through a massive list of completely falsified accusations? You could call it the, the Twitter effect. It takes far longer to disprove something than it does to write up the initial completely incorrect piece of information. You can spool a hundred of those off in no time. But Sir Kennard also was very clear that he did not believe the general thrust of the accusations, and that it was probably just Germany doing the same thing they had done to Czechoslovakia in 1938. Here is another of his correspondences, this time from August 27th. Quote, so far as I can judge, German allegations of mass ill-treatment of German minority by Polish authorities are gross exaggerations, if not complete falsifications. There is no sign of any loss of control of situation by Polish civil authorities. Warsaw, in so far as I can ascertain the rest of Poland, is still completely calm. Such allegations are reminiscent of Nazi propaganda methods regarding Czechoslovakia last year. End quote. With continuing instances of German provocation, the message given both directly to the German government and by British political leaders in public speeches would harden over the course of the last week of August. Here is the British ambassador in Berlin, Henderson, reporting on a conversation he had with Hitler on August 23rd. Quote, at the end of this first conversation, Herr Hitler observed, in reply to my repeated warnings that direct action by Germany would mean war, that Germany had nothing to lose, and Great Britain much, that he did not desire war, but would not shrink from it if it was necessary, and that his people were much more behind him than last September, referring to September 1938, when the Munich Agreement was signed. While the British government was making its position and resolve clear, there would be a big change in the overall situation with the announcement of the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact and the non-aggression agreement between Germany and the Soviet Union. While this cut short any negotiations between Britain and the Soviets, Chamberlain would make it clear that it did not change the official position of the British government in relation to possible German action. Here is a speech from August 24th in front of the House of Commons. Quote, that was the situation on Tuesday last when in Berlin and Moscow it was announced that negotiations had been taking place and were likely soon to be concluded 
for a non-aggression pact between the two countries. I do not attempt to conceal from the House that that announcement came to the government as a surprise, and a surprise of a very unpleasant character. For some time past, there had been rumors about an impending change in the relations between Germany and the Soviet Union, but no inkling of that change had been conveyed either to us or to the French government by the Soviet government. End quote. The idea that the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact meant nothing for, for Britain's sort of commitments to the continent was also conveyed privately to Hitler by Henderson on the next day, which would be August 25th. Quote, Conversation lasted an hour, my attitude being that Russian pact in no way altered standpoint of His Majesty's government, and that I must tell him quite honestly that Britain could not go back on her word to Poland, and that I knew his offer would not be considered unless it meant a negotiated settlement of the Polish question. Herr Hitler refused to guarantee this on grounds that Polish provocation might at any moment render German intervention to protect German nationals inevitable. I again and again returned to this point, but always got the same answer. End quote. The general tenor of the interactions between Hitler and Henderson would not change over the week that followed, leading to the German invasion. Here is another quote from a report, this time written and sent on August 28th by Henderson again. Quote, Herr Hitler continued to argue that Poland could never be reasonable. She had England and France behind her, and imagined that even if she were beaten, she would later recover, thanks to their help, more than she might lose. He spoke of annihilating Poland. I said that reminded me of similar talk last year of annihilation of the Czechs. He retorted that he were that we were incapable of inducing Poland to be reasonable. I said that it was just because we remembered the experience of Czechoslovakia last year that we hesitated to press Poland too far today. Nevertheless, we reserved to ourselves the right to form our own judgment as to what was or what was not reasonable so far as Poland or Germany were concerned. We kept our hands free in that respect. End quote. Just a few days later, Germany would invade Poland, and all of the British talk of resolve and meeting German expansion with a declaration of war would be put to the test, and the answer would finally arrive on September 4th with that declaration. <laughs> 